The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter Seven, in which Astrea becomes a farmer. Astrea looked up at clay-chinked beams he had never seen before. His head throbbed when he moved it, and cautious stirrings brought both pain and the realization that his head and shoulder were bandaged. When he tried to roll over and look about, he heard himself groan. Almost immediately a woman's face looked down on him, and her hands pressed gently onto his bare shoulder. Astrea looked into dark eyes above a sharp chin and high cheekbones. Her brown hair was braided and coiled up high on her head. "'Just you lie still,' she frowned, and Astrea saw that she was older than he had first thought. The flat, almost expressionless tone of her voice awoke recent memories for Astrea, and he slowly came to the conclusion that he must be in a teen-mouth house. "'I have to get back to the molly, back to my boat,' he said. "'Not now. You can't go anywhere.' She frowned, her lips compressing into the thin, firm line of a parent speaking to a willful child. Astrea struggled to rise, but when crimson-shot blackness blanked out his vision, he sank back. The woman was right. There was not much point in thinking about walking to the molly when he could not even sit up. "'What happened?' he asked as his vision cleared. "'My man Jeb brought you here after you were hurt.' "'Nasty mess of cuts and bruises you were, too, I can tell you. "'Good thing you were wearing that woolen hat. "'It saved you from a broken skull. "'But we patched you up, and you'll be all right soon.' "'We?' Estrella asked. "'Eva, my girl, and me. "'You were lucky to be brought here to us who know something of the healing art. "'I was apprenticed to a healer for two seasons before I became Jeb's wife.' she said, her mouth softening slightly in self-congratulation. "'What is?' Estrella began. "'No more questions now. You can talk to my man when he comes home. Rest. Eva will be here soon, with some water for you.' Estrella persuaded himself to relax, which was not difficult, when he thought about his attempt to get up. The promise of a drink made him thirsty, and so to be ready he watched the doorway. Then a patch of sunlight on the wall beside him drew his eyes. The light seemed to move in jerks to a new position. Eventually it diminished from a square to an oblong to a sliver of light golden with evening. At some time during these changes soft footsteps came to his bed, an arm raised his shoulders, a cup was pressed to his lips, he drank, and then fell back into fitful sleep. When he awoke fully, a flickering candle lit the face of a girl. The candle dripped hot wax onto the blanket as she looked into his eyes, frowning. Estrella looked back into her brown-eyed gaze, and saw a slender nose and a small, well-shaped mouth, firm with attention to any tell-tale signs of serious head injury. He blinked in the dim light, taking stock of her heart-shaped face, which was framed by wisps of brown hair that had escaped from two tight pigtails. He made an effort to smile at her, and she blushed, her concentration broken. Then her face became shadowed and indistinct as she lowered the candle and stepped backwards. "'Mother, I think he's better,' she called. Two faces hovered over him, the candle between them. Estrella smiled again. Their mouths lifted at the corners in the same way, 
and they exchanged a glance of mutual congratulation. After a long silence, the woman nodded a couple of times and spoke. "'My man Jeb's doing chores. You missed supper. Perhaps you can try some soup.' She paused. "'What's your name?' "'Astrea,' he replied. "'Strea,' they both repeated. Astrea accepted almost gratefully the echo of his own villager's mispronunciation of his name, and he did not correct them. As they stood looking down on Astrea and he up at them, they heard the footfalls of heavy boots that thumped towards the outer door and scraped on a step. "'How's the boy?' asked a man's voice without enthusiasm. "'He's awake,' replied Eva. "'He's going to be all right, father.' Astrea rolled his head on the pillow to look at the newcomer. Though his temples throbbed menacingly, the dark threat of unconsciousness stayed at a distance. All he could make out in the light of Eva's single candle was the curve of the man's chin, dark with stubble. In the shadows, the man's eyes were dark circles above full cheeks. "'I have to go back to my boat,' he began. "'He doesn't know, father,' said Eva. "'Young fellow,' said Jeb's slow, flat voice from the shadows. "'You don't want to go back to those people. They don't care about you. You don't even look like them. The boy who hit you ran back to the boat. When we went after him, he wouldn't stop. We shouted. We rowed after them. They pulled up anchor. Sailed away. "'No!' said Astrea, struggling to sit. "'Roaring Jack wouldn't leave me. I know he wouldn't.' Jeb's voice did not alter. "'I saw it all. We shouted. They paid us no mind.' His matter-of-fact, plodding way of speaking was more convincing than emotion-filled persuasion. Convinced against his will, Astrea slid down in the bed and turned his head away. Jan's attack came back to him in all its treachery, and each of his hurts throbbed, painfully recalling what had happened. Slowly the pain ebbed to numbness, and he sank into something between sleep and waking. He could hear the family going about their evening duties, but his mind wandered. One moment he expected to awake aboard the Molly, or even in the village. The next he was holding hopelessness at bay by refusing to think of anything save how he might draw a picture of the light and shadows in the dimly lit room. He fell asleep and dreamed of faceless men throwing stones at him as the Molly's crew watched and laughed. He woke sweating and listened for a while to the sounds of Eva and her mother clearing up after the evening meal. He thought he was keeping track of what was going on, but he must have slept, because the next time he was fully conscious the house was dark. The silence was broken only by the drip of dew from the roof. A patch of moonlight fell palely onto the blanket that covered his chest. When he rolled his head cautiously to his left, he saw that his bed lay in the corner between two outside walls, with a curtain making a tiny triangular room. Astrea's mind cleared, and he started to separate reality from his disturbed dreams. He recalled the scene at the well, and at first could think of no reason why Yan would want to attack him. Then, as he remembered his irritation at Yan's complaints, Astrea heard his own voice giving orders, treating Yan as if he were a dunce, and he recognized what he had seen in Yan's eyes just before the oar swung for the last time. 
Belatedly, another memory of Yan with a stone in his hand rose in Astrea's mind, and he knew that ever since the fight on the beach the urge to kill had lurked in Yan like a worm in a nut. "'But I was right,' Astrea murmured indistinctly to the darkness. "'My sketching was more important than Yan's work, and I, I did my share of the bailing during the storm, and I saved his sorry arse when he nearly fell overboard.' He tried to justify himself out of a dark well of loneliness, but as he thought of how Roaring Jack, Scar Arm Ian, and Red Ian had all accepted and even valued him, he could not understand why they had sided with Yan, sailed off, and abandoned him. Slowly, Astrea began to ask himself if he had been deceived even before Yan's betrayal. If he had been so wrong about them, who could he trust? He blinked as tears distorted his view of the moonlit room, slid across his temples, and soaked into the bandage around his head. He bit the insides of his cheeks, angry at having succumbed to childish weeping. Eventually he slept. Astrea was woken by a chorus of morning noises. Chickens clucked and scratched outside his window, water sloshed in a pail, and on the kitchen stove a kettle clattered its lid before its contents glugged into a teapot. For a little while he lay with his eyes closed, recalling memories of his mother's cottage and the sounds of the strange house to which he had been brought. When nothing came of this save a deepening sense of loss, he opened his eyes. The curtain had been drawn back, and the girl called Eva was looking down at him. "'Mother, he's awake again,' she said. "'Really awake this time.' She bent over him and stared into his eyes, blushing when he smiled at her. "'His eyes aren't dull any more,' she said, and stopped, embarrassed. "'I don't think I said thank you,' said Estrella slowly, as memories of what he had heard and said came back to him. "'How long have I been here?' "'More in a couple of days,' said the flat, masculine voice out of sight from the little room, which Estrella now saw— was only the corner of the kitchen. Astrea sat up cautiously as the man came over to stand beside the bed. He saw a large chin salted with white stubble. Above the almost lipless mouth were eyes that glinted between puffy lids. Jeb had no expression at all, neither in his face nor in the words he spoke. First you were awake. You spoke, but you didn't say words. Then you talked a bit the wife said I shouldn't tell you that your boat left. But before I did, you were restless. After, you slept. Astrea knew he could not deal with the information Judith's husband was giving him if he let it touch his emotions. He nodded, forcing back despair. I'd like to get up, he said, and started to swing his feet over the edge of the bed. He stopped when he discovered that he was naked under the sheet. He looked around and saw his clothes washed and folded on the foot of the bed. The knife that had been his father's lay on top. Worry drove out embarrassment as he clutched at his left arm, where his fingers closed gratefully on the bracelet under the woven string scar-arm Ian had given him. The grey string glowed green above the jewel it concealed. "'There is no taking that off you,' said Judith. "'You thrashed about, so we left it alone.' It was my father's. He's dead. Astrea spoke in a tone that discouraged questions. 
Then, not wanting to be rude to people who had helped him, he touched the bandage on his head and added, "'You've done a wonderful job. I'm all right, apart from a tender spot above my ear, and a few bruises. "'Mother thinks you'll have a scar, but your hair will cover it,' said Eva. "'You'll stay calm till the wife is sure you haven't taken hurt inside your head.' There was no compassion in Jeb's order. Eva moved to the kitchen to help her mother, and Jeb went back to his place at the table. Estrella drew the grey homespun curtain and pulled on clothes no longer stiff with salt. As he did so, he became aware of how much had been done for him. His body was clean, there was a white bandage around his head, another on his shoulder, but he was surprised that there was so little discomfort when he felt his cuts and bruises through the material. But when he pulled his shirt over his head, he winced as it caught on the cloth that ran around both his temples. Moving quietly in bare feet, Estrella drew back the curtain. Just beyond one end of the pole on which it ran was a door that presumably led to a back room. Ahead of him was the main room. On his right was the window over his bed, and a little farther away a second window over a table scrubbed white by many cleanings. An outside door was open in the far wall, through which he could see a couple of brindled hens scratching in the red earth path outside. To his left was a brick and metal stove, between two more windows. The far corner held a set of shelves for dishes above a closed cupboard. Estrella took all this in quickly, and then focused on the three people. The man named Jeb sat in the one chair, with his back towards Estrella. He was powerful, work-hardened, stoop-shouldered, and callous-handed. Graying stubble obscured deep lines on either side of his thin-lipped mouth. He moved as if he sensed he was being observed, so Estrella turned his attention toward Eva's mother. She was tall, and so slim that the bones of her forearms were visible, and she walked with a slight stoop, as if she were carrying a burden on her thin shoulders. She wore a loose white blouse, above a brown skirt that fell to her ankles. As he watched, she carried an earthenware jug and a loaf of bread to the table, where Eva was already seated on a bench under the window. While Eva had been all alertness and swift motion, her mother moved with a tired efficiency born of countless repetitions. His eyes lingered on Eva's sleek brown hair, which today flowed loose down to the middle of her back, held by a ribbon over the top of her head. Eva blinked up at him in the sunlight from the window under which she sat, her eyelashes throwing tiny shadows onto the bridge of her nose. Astrea wondered how he might draw so fine a detail. Eva blushed at his intense stare, and pointed to the stool opposite her. She smiled as he sat down, and then after a quick glance at her father, focused on spooning porridge from the bowl in front of her. Her mother joined her on the bench below the window. "'Eat,' said Jeb, pushing back his chair. "'Eva, you're finished. Go tend to your chores. Don't be chattering to him.' He spoke as one who expects to be obeyed, and though his voice was low, his tone was harsh. Estrella thought of Roaring Jack's huge voice, and then banished the memory before he could dwell on how he had been deceived and abandoned. When Jeb pushed back his chair, stood and walked to the door, 
drew on boots he had left at the doorstep, and strode off into the morning, Astraea noticed that both women visibly relaxed. The tension faded from Eva's face, and even her mother's firmly pursed mouth relaxed somewhat. For a while Astraea had no consciousness of time. He ate his breakfast as much with his eyes as by its tastes. Milk in a deep brown earthenware jug, golden butter on a blue-ringed plate, a crusty loaf on a breadboard of black hardwood, all lying on the white wood of the table, its grain raised by repeated scrubbings. He took a bite of bread and was amazed by the taste. "'Is something wrong?' Judith asked. "'Not at all,' Estrella answered. "'It's just that it's so good.' "'Don't you have bread where you come from?' "'Mostly we eat oat-cakes.' "'Oats,' said Eva, "'like we feed to horses.' "'No wheat, then?' said Judith. Astraea shook his head. They both looked at him pityingly, and he felt himself blush. When he had finished eating, Astraea stood to carry his plate and mug to the little washstand beside the stove, where Judith was cleaning dishes. Eva and her mother seemed surprised. They refused to accept any help from Astraea. Indeed, they seemed to take it amiss when he suggested that he could make himself useful around the house. Estrella did not insist, but sat a little uncomfortably at the table while they worked around him. He plied them with questions about Teenmouth. Eva was glad to oblige him, as she helped her mother with the chores, and even if she talked more than she worked, her mother took no official notice. Estrella discovered that Teenmouth was made up of a dozen extended families, more or less interrelated, most of them with several children. The men were all farmers. None of them used boats except to paddle across the little river, or set night-lines in the estuary. He had the impression that Eva thought Teenmouth and all its people were deadly dull. On the other hand, Judith's interests were intently focused on the doings of neighbours, as well as familiar topics such as rain, sun, and the growth of plants and animals. Estrella found himself wishing to be back in the village, where women's gossip was about familiar people he had known all his life— and the men's talk ran to speculating, and sometimes boasting, about where and how to fish. Since he had little interest in the doings of people he did not know, Astraea asked about what lay around where the molly had brought him. He learned that Eva knew little about nearby communities, nor did she have much curiosity about any of the ones which were close, all of which she spurned even more than Teenmouth. However, she was fascinated by what and who was further away. When she asked Estrella why the Molly had adventured to the south, he explained as best he could, and she was curious why Roaring Jack would want to leave the land and see he knew. He took a breath to explain, but in that moment he remembered that most of the people in the village had opposed the journey south. He abruptly changed the subject to hide how he had lost faith in his skipper. Forestalling questions, he looked into Eva's brown eyes, and she was suddenly silent. "'What do you want to do with your life, Eva?' The enthusiasm of her reply surprised him. "'I want to be a somebody,' she said earnestly. "'I want to go to the learned's castle and study from books. I want to read, to know how to make people well. I want to be a healer.' Blushing, she gave Estrella a challenging look that he had not seen before. She put both her hands on the table and leaned towards him 
Estrella was momentarily distracted because girls in the village did not wear their bodices so colourfully embroidered, so tight, or so low. He dragged his eyes up to look into hers. "'Why don't you, then?' asked Estrella, focusing on her face and the urgency in her voice. "'Didn't your mother tell me that she had—' "'Mother was apprenticed to a healer. He only taught her what he was too lazy to do himself, and then he died.' and she became my mother, and then she could learn no more. I want to go and learn it all at the castle. Hush now. The castle's only for boys, said her mother. It wasn't always that way, said Eva. You told me there used to be women healers, even women learneds. That was a long time ago, girl, and things change. But if I could go, I think they'd accept me. If only father would let me— It's not up to your father. You know that. Teen Mouth has only one place to fill, and you know it's got to go to Seth or Jacob or nobody. But they don't want to go, Astrea said, stamping her foot. The fools don't even care. What's the castle? And who goes there? Astrea asked. It's up country to the south. Every few years Teen Mouth gets to send someone to the castle. They stay there for two years, and when they're finished, they're sent to places like Teenmouth that need a healer. Places that don't send someone don't get one. They teach you how to read and write, and of course that makes you different when you get back. That's why neither Seth nor Jacob wants to go. They're stupid. Can none in Teenmouth read, then? asked Estrella. Of course not. Well, Nobody but a few elders, and they aren't about to teach farmers' sons, because if they did, they'd lose their authority, wouldn't they? Some of the older men, like my father, can make out a few words, but not read to learn. Why should they? I mean, can you? Astrea nodded, and as he did so, realized that she'd thought she'd known the answer to her question, so he nodded again. She drew back from the table suddenly, her dress swirling around her ankles. "'You can read?' she asked incredulously. "'You're scarce more than a boy.' Astrea nodded again. Eva called to her mother, who had gone outside the house to tend her bread-oven, and then rushed out to tell her. Astrea was left alone in the kitchen, pondering what seemed to him an excessive reaction. In the village not everyone could read, but most could spell out simple, plain words on paper, make lists, or write down important instructions. The kind of reading that Skarm had helped Astrea achieve might have seemed odd or unchancy to some of the older women of the village, but certainly would not have awakened the wonder that Eva's face expressed. Thinking about the village reopened the knight's pit of despair. He closed his eyes, breathed deeply, deliberately opened them, and looked around as if he were about to sketch the room and its contents. For a few moments the distraction worked. He noticed that there were neither pictures nor texts nor woven hangings on the walls as there would have been in the village. Though only a few men like Scar-Arm Ian or Astrea's father were eager for words, as the village called it, nonetheless almost all of the cottages had texts worked in needle and thread, or with a poker on wood, or even carved on whalebone. Haste makes waste was a favourite but there were also phrases with no apparent meaning, such as, Remake now thy creature in the dew of the hearth, which hung over Roaring Jack's fireplace, 
almost obliterated by smoke from winter-long fires. This train of thought brought him back to his skipper, and the pit yawned once more. Eva and her mother came back into the farmhouse, curiosity showing on their faces. Judith wiped her hands on her apron, then shook it out the doorway to remove fine ash and flour from her bread-oven. Eva was at her side, flipping her hair back over her shoulder. "'You can read and write,' said Eva. "'Go on. Tell her yourself.' Astrea nodded, embarrassed by the unsought admiration. He had never spoken about books with any of the villagers of his own age, because Skarm had asked him not to, and also because he knew that his accomplishment would make him seem even more strange and foreign. He suspected that the adults would have been just as unimpressed. But things were different here. Apparently, Teenmouth people, other than the two strangely named young men, revered those who could read, because nothing would satisfy Eva and her mother until Astrea had written their names, Eva and Judith, on a scrap of paper with a twig of charcoal. Judith nodded her head approvingly. The master of healing from the castle did it just so when he made a visit here. I was little more than a child, she said. "'Mine's less than yours, mother,' said Eva. "'What does that mean?' Eva was fascinated as Astrea explained how the letters stood for sounds. They barely heard Judith leave. Eva leaned on Astrea's arm, her head next to his, looking at the letters he was making. When he glanced at her, he saw her brown eyes narrowed with concentration, her lips parted, and she held the tip of her tongue between her teeth. Astrea was captivated. Neither noticed how much of the morning passed with the two of them side by side, her hair occasionally tickling his cheek when she nodded her head, his hand guiding hers as he showed her how to form letters. Judith interrupted them from time to time, and even found more scraps of paper on which they could practice writing, but they soon returned to their fascinations, Eva with words, Astrea with Eva. Judith stood for some time watching them in thoughtful silence, before she shooed them away from the table so that she could prepare the evening meal. When evening came and Jeb returned for dinner, Astrea again found himself being shown off like a rare and valuable animal. Eva showed her father her careful attempts to write her own name beside Astrea's. "'You see, father, you see,' she said eagerly, "'girls can learn to read and write. I could go and learn, be a healer, come back and be able to read, and—and—and everything.' Jeb looked up at her narrowly, his slit eyes almost invisible, as if his daughter were a bright light. "'Don't you think, husband,' said Judith softly, "'that Teenmouth has maybe had its problem solved by Providence? Just when the elders can't find a young man to send to the castle, out of nowhere comes a boat bringing one to us. And who knows, daughter, perhaps he'll return when he becomes learned.' If he is as generous-natured as he is now, he might teach you to read and write. But, father, it's I who should be going, Eva began. Her father jerked his forearm upright, hand open, his elbow still on the table. Eva fell back as if he had struck her. She shook her head, and Astrea's cheek was first whipped by her hair and then splashed by a hot teardrop. Father, it, it's not fair, she said getting control of herself. Jeb closed his hand. 
His fist was lumpy from years of ploughing, seeding, and reaping. Eva was silent, and Judith's face tensed. "'Your place, daughter, is here. Your duty is in Teenmouth. No girl should speak of the counsellor's choice of a scholar. Nor you, wife.' Slowly Jeb lowered his hand until it lay on the table, the fingers loosely clenched. He tipped back his head to look down at both of them, and as he continued to stare down his somewhat bulbous nose, Astraea saw Judith's eyes focus on her lap. Eva tossed her hair, caught a strand between her fingers, and pulled hard. Her eyes were wide and watery, but she made no sound, even though her breasts rose and fell as if she had been running. Astraea was shocked by the intensity of the moment. In the village he had often heard couples arguing with each other. Indeed, almost everyone at some time had heard Roaring Jack and his wife Molly when they were launched on one of their occasional shouting matches. But the general opinion was that these were like summer storms, loud and angry, but soon passing. He looked at each member of this Teenmouth family in turn, seeing something much more bitter and lasting. Without thinking, Astraea intervened to protect the two women from Jeb's humiliating stare. I, I have to get back to my boat, to the village, to find my—he stammered. Put that out of your mind, Jeb ordered. The lad who struck you must have lied, told his people we murdered you, reason why they wouldn't listen. When the big one looked like he would attack, we had to scare them off. They didn't care for you. Small wonder. You don't even look like them. Astraea felt his last hope slapped down by Jeb's words. He bowed his head. Behind his closed eyes he saw white caps to the horizon, as if from the molly's masthead. Headlands circled by gulls. The foaming stream in the village. Alana's hair in the wind. Astraea hugged his chest, holding himself together against the ache of loss. His fingers found his father's bracelet under his shirt, and the images faded slowly before his mind's eye. A tingling started below the silver band on his arm. He felt the hair on the back of his neck move. He raised his head and met Jeb's gaze. "'If I can't get back,' he almost stopped but hurried on, "'then I'd like to go and see this castle place. Maybe they'd know how I could—' "'You too, Strayer,' cried Eva. "'I thought you were different.' A stool crashed to the floor as she turned and ran out of the house, her skirts flaring behind her. Judith righted Eva's stool and started to serve Jeb his evening meal, her face inscrutable. "'You'll ask for nothing,' said Jeb. "'You owe me your life. You'll pay for it by working my land. Now, eat your food.' Estrella tried to eat, but his stomach was in a knot. He wanted to object, but everything he could say foundered, because he had no alternative, no bargaining position, no power at all. Opposite him, across the table, Jeb put food into his mouth and chewed stolidly, occasionally taking a swallow from a mug of dark beer. Judith lit two small oil lamps, placed them on the table, and served herself small portions of food that she did not finish. At the end of the silent meal, 
Jeb pushed back his chair and cleared his throat judicially. <clears throat> Young man, you've sat and eaten at my table. If you're obedient and useful, you may again. You're healed enough to be in the barn, not under the same roof as my daughter. It's not seemly. Jeb's slow speech ended. He emptied the earthenware jug into his beer mug, drank deeply, and sighed like a man who has finished a heavy task. Astrea could stand it no longer. He took a breath to protest, but before he could speak, Judith caught his eye. She was standing behind her husband, reaching for his empty plate, while his eyes were focused on the inside of his beer mug. With a small gesture of one hand, she pleaded for Astrea's silence and agreement. He would have ignored the request had she not followed it with a glance at her husband. Distressed to see her fear, Astrea sat silent. In the quiet room, Jeb's mug gurgled as he drained the last of his beer. He wiped the face with lips so thin that his mouth looked as if it had been cut with a knife, grated his chair back, and stood. "'Come now, young stranger. I'm going to make a farmer of you. Wife?' Give him bedding, and send him after me. I'll deal with Eva later. Taking up one of the lamps, he strode out the door. Judith found a couple of blankets, much rougher than those under which Astrea had slept, and handed them to him. What does he mean, I'll deal with Eva? Astrea whispered. She'll get the sharp side of his tongue and the flat of his hand, said Judith softly. He won't use a stick or harm her so it shows. But he's set in his ways. Astraea stared at her. Growing up in the village, he had never known parents who struck their children, save for a mother delivering the occasional smack on the bottom of an erring toddler, in rare cases when a boy had done something mean, disrespectful, or dangerous to others. His father might lead him by the ear to the woodshed, where he would administer a green switch to the offenders behind that a father would strike his almost-grown daughter was an idea entirely foreign to Astraea. Why did you stop me from speaking? Maybe I could have stopped him from correcting Eva later? No, Astraea. It's a kind notion, but it won't work. Once she crossed him directly, that was that. The fat was in the fire. I know. Her voice fell so that Astraea barely caught the last two words. It's best if you bend with the wind, she said slowly. You'll learn. Now, hurry after him. Astraea stumbled out the door into the darkness. At first he could see nothing under the trees that stood around the cottage. Then he glimpsed yellow light from Jeb's lamp, just before it disappeared around the corner of a building. Astraea's bare feet felt his way down an earth path to where a tall barn blocked the stars. He turned the corner to where Jeb was waiting for him, silhouetted by the lamp in his hand. The farmer thumbed a latch, opened a door, and pushed Astraea inside. He struck his shin on something unseen, and fell onto a low bed, cushioned by the blankets in his arms. "'No lights in the barn, sailor boy. Ever. If I catch you—' He slammed the door, leaving his threat unspoken. It did not have the effect he wanted. 
He thinks he's smart, but he's a stupid brute, Estrella whispered between clenched teeth as he rolled himself into the blankets. He's not going to scare me. In his moment of anger, his arm tingled under his bracelet. Estrella pulled back the blankets, shoved up his sleeve, eased the woven string so that enough light pulsed from the stone that he could look around his tiny wooden cell. In the mysterious greenish light he could make out a small window in the wall on his right, a door at his feet, and the stool over which he had fallen, all surrounded by rough-sawn wooden walls. Astrea had broken Jeb's first rule, and he enjoyed doing it. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.